Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, everything that we just prayed in those songs, I, I pray by your, by your grace and by your power, would you make them true in our lives? Lord, the things that we just sang about do not come naturally to us. It's not natural to us that in the dark seasons of our life we'll have confidence and trust in you. We don't do that in our own power. We do that because you empower us to do that. And so, Lord, I pray as we turn our attention to your word, you know us in our own nature. We do not naturally take direction from you. Our hearts most naturally want to rebel against you and do our own thing in all kinds of different ways. But we all share that in common in our natures. And yet when your spirit moves in our lives, you give us an ability that we don't have to desire your instruction, to love it, to embrace it, to hear it, to desire to obey it. And that is foreign to us, but a gift from you. I pray that that gift of grace would be operating in us as we turn our attention to your word, to being taught by you, commanded by you. Lord, make us an obedient people, not on the surface, gritting our teeth, but at a heart level. Give us a desire to be obedient to your word and do it as we sit under its teaching. And I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Uh, it was funny. I was in here, you know, we had a Saturday night service. I was in here last night and uh, it was the first time, first Saturday night in quite a while that the sun was still up. And that's because of the great thing called daylight savings time. Yeah? A couple fans of daylight savings time here. I'm a huge fan of daylight savings time. I remember as a kid, it was one of my favorite things about daylight savings time. There was, there was only a little bit of time in the year when me and my brother and all my friends would have permission. We, we would have to come in for dinner time and we'd sit down and eat dinner together as a family. But when it was daylight savings time, after dinner was done, I'd look over at my mom and dad and they'd give me this little little nod that because it was daylight savings time, me and my friends can get right back out in the street playing wiffle ball until we couldn't even hardly swing our arms anymore. We love daylight savings time. And then on, on non-school nights during daylight savings time, my parents would let me sleep outside. So I would take a cot and an old military sleeping bag that we had, and I would sleep out under the stars. It was in Southern California. Have I told you I grew up in Southern California yet? Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, I loved it. Now, um, one of my favorite things to do uh, was I, I would wake up pretty early. And because I was early up, up, sort of up before anybody else was, I would have to find something to occupy my time. And there wasn't much on TV back in the day. That was back in the day when you had, do you remember when you had to physically get up from the chair to change a channel? Thank the Lord there was only four of them. And Love Boat was on three of them. So you didn't have to worry about it. So in the morning, I would get out my book and uh, on this particular year, I was reading this book called The Right Stuff. And one of the great, I mean, one of the characters of real, um, of real honor in that book called The Right Stuff is the, is the guy, Chuck Yeager, the man who actually broke the sound barrier. And um, he tells the story about how that happened. 
And see, for a lot of the test pilots before Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier, uh, a similar thing would happen to every one of them. You know, they figured out a way to drop out an X-1, uh, an X-1 fighter out of a plane so that he already had altitude and already had speed. And at that point, the goal was to take it from the speed that he was traveling at and throttle up and push right up to the sound barrier. And the goal was to push through it. But what happened every time to every other test pilot, see, as you got closer to Mach 1, as you got closer to that speed, the aerodynamics of the plane would start to get tested, so the plane would start to shake. And every other pilot, the more the plane shook, the closer to the sound barrier they got. They had in their mind, they had a mental barrier that to, tr to attempt to take this plane shaking even faster and through the sound barrier, they anticipated that the shaking would get worse and worse and on the other side of the sound barrier would be even more problems. Chuck Yeager is in the, he's, uh, he's in the pilot seat in the cockpit. And at the moment when the plane is shaking, when every other pilot's natural inclination was to pull the throttle back and avoid the turbulence, Chuck Yeager did exactly the opposite. The more the plane shook and the closer he got to Mach 1, instead of throttling back, what did he do? He pushed the throttle even further. And you know what Chuck Yeager discovered? On the other side of the sound barrier, the air is smooth as silk. And we would have never known it, except the guy named Chuck Yeager sitting in that cockpit had one thing that those other test pilots did not have. And you know what that is? Nerve. He had the nerve to sit in that plane while it was shaking. And instead of taking the safe route and throttling back, setting his sights on Mach 1, he pushed the throttle forward, not back. And that came from nerve. The ability to maintain his own composure in a situation of turbulence and do what was required of him to do. Nerve. We're heading into the last couple chapters of the book of Acts. And we meet a guy that's very much in line with a guy like Chuck Yeager, facing all kinds of turbulence. Today we're going to look at three turbulent experiences that he had. And in his life, as he got towards his own Mach 1, the plane of his life was going through great turbulence. And in situations where he had all kinds of opportunities to pull the throttle back, as everything around him started shaking more and more, as great powerful people around him started having even more and more intense emotions and actions toward him instead of him throttling back on the mission of his life. When, when, when most everybody else would be in his position and say, really, Paul, do you really want to, you really want to do that? And with a real, with the real deep sense of spiritual nerve, he looked at the situation, and in spite of all the turbulence, he did what was required of him to do. Boy, and I hope that one of the things that we focus on this morning is we don't take a superficial look at this, as if the Apostle Paul is some kind of heroic person and has the kind of moral character that you and I could never have. Boy, that is not true. There's an actual true pathway that the Bible gives us for how you and I can have that kind of spiritual nerve in our own turbulent situations. And in a room with this many people in it, I'm guessing not everybody's looking out the front windshield of your life to peaceful times, to warm sunrises and clear skies. Maybe some of you walked in here today and what's happening in your life, maybe your plane's shaking. And I hope that as we open up to God's word today, we see what, what is it that gives a Christian 
A Christian like the Apostle Paul, the inner strength, the inner stability, the weight, the nerve to sit in a turbulent situation and do what is required of you to do in difficult circumstances. Boy, if you could use any of that, I'm going to ask you to take your copy of God's Word, open it up to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapters 22 and 23. And because these aren't my words, this is the words of our great high King, Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask that you stand to your feet. And um, we're going to, you know, we're going to open up our ears, but more important than you hearing those words in your, in your own ears, the most important place that we need to hear God's word is in the ears of our hearts. So let's hear these as the word of God. Acts chapter 22, I'm going to start at verse 30. But on the next day, we're going to talk about that. We're going to, we're picking up this story after a heck of a day. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, that's the Apostle Paul, he, this is the Roman Tribune, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile the high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by your own power, by your spirit active in us, open up our hearts our minds, to learn what we need to learn. We don't know enough. It's a great sin that we don't know you as well as we need to. So Lord, make us holy by bringing us into more of a knowledge of you. And Lord, we don't obey you enough. We admit that. I pray today you would change that in some way in our lives. Give us a desire from these words. Teach us and show us how we can make that happen. Holy Spirit, lead us into truth. Be our teacher this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. 
I mean, the Apostle Paul had a rough couple days. Last week, we spent the whole sermon describing one of those days. And sometimes, like I said, because we go week to week on Sunday, we can forget kind of where we are. So we're going to drop in. I'm just going to kind of remind us where we all are in the story of the Apostle Paul's life. Now, remember, the Apostle Paul got on a ship from Europe and headed back to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he was there at Pentecost. It's a great festival. Million people uh, in Jerusalem. But because in Jerusalem at this time, the city of Jerusalem was beginning beginning to receive the wrath of God on that city. It was that city and its leaders who crucified the Son of Heaven, the eternal Son of God. And for that, little by little, that city was falling under more and more judgment. Only 13 years after the events that we just read about today, the entire city of Jerusalem would be destroyed. And it was destroyed because Jesus said it was going to be. He told the whole city, not one stone is going to sit on top of each other. This place is going to be obliterated. And the reason why is because you crucified the son of glory. You think you crucify the son of God and then just march on your merry way? Not a chance. And the city was already beginning to lose its center of gravity. And it was unraveling. So at the festival of Pentecost, the apostle Paul shows up. And there's a great stirring. Some Jews identify him as a person who's a threat to to, to the Jewish faith. And they think that he's a threat to the Jewish faith because he believes in and is preaching Christ. And so the mob grabs a hold of the Apostle Paul, drags him on the other side of the gate, and begins to beat him with the intention to kill him. Within moments of being beaten to death, Roman guard who's stationed in the castle of Antonia, a Roman garrison right inside the temple. They were on high alert during festivals for mob scenes just like this. And the Roman centurions came and fulfilled the prophecy that had happened. They bound him, but instead of them binding him in a negative way, it was the arrest of the Roman guard that saved the apostle Paul's life. They surrounded him, lifted him up out of the crowd, walked him into the barracks. But just before he got to safety, the Apostle Paul asked for permission to speak to the crowd and share his testimony. That's what we spent most of the time last week talking about. And likely with swollen eyes and a beaten face and a bloody body, the Apostle Paul testified to Jesus Christ. And when he got done with his testimony, instead of bringing peace to the crowd, the crowd was even more whipped up than before. And so the Roman guards grabbed the Apostle Paul and brought him uh, into the Antonia Castle, into the barracks. The Apostle Paul is at safety. But see, the, the Romans weren't done. Because the Romans were in charge of law and order in the city of Jerusalem. And if the Apostle Paul was getting attacked by the crowd like this, and if the people had made a charge against him, the Romans were under the obligation to exercise due process. The Roman leaders needed to find out what was going on. Were the charges against the Apostle Paul true? Had he committed a crime? And if he had committed a crime, he must suffer the punishment. This is the role that the Roman uh, Empire played in Jerusalem. And so the tribune who was in charge of that garrison, tribune comes from the Greek word for a thousand. So a tribune is a Roman leader over a thousand soldiers. He would have 10 centurions reporting to him. Centurion comes from that word century, a hundred. So 10 centurions in charge of a hundred soldiers each reported to the tribune. And the tribune was going to get to the bottom of what exactly was happening. He was going to extract some information from the Apostle Paul um, by the means of painful interrogation. 
Now, I just want you to think about this. The Apostle Paul had just been beaten almost to death. How much pain do you think that he was in? And now being dragged into the Roman barracks, thinking that the suffering was over, it was just going to begin another round because this is on the same day. They tell the centurion to tie both of his arms up, spread his arms out in preparation for a Roman-style flogging to begin. And a Roman-style flogging was nothing to mess around with. Any of you have been to a Good Friday service, oftentimes us pastors tell you about just what that was like. A leather braided whip with all kinds of sharp stones and glass on the end of it intended to do damage. And one flog after another, the centurion intended to get to the bottom of what these charges were for the Apostle Paul. How would you feel standing both arms tied after being beaten almost to death and now another beating of another kind is going to begin? The Apostle Paul turns to the centurion and with nerve asks the centurion, is what you're doing lawful? Can you do this to a Roman citizen? And the moment the Apostle Paul said that, it was a game changer to the whole scene. Because actually for the tribune or for the centurion to order a Roman citizen to be bound up and flogged, did you know that was a capital offense? The tribune could lose his life. The Apostle Paul looks at the centurion, and we have to remember, all through the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, centurions are always presented as soldiers of great honor who understood authority and understood character. Just think what the centurion could have done when the Apostle Paul asked him if it was lawful. He could have said, well, I don't know, but the boss upstairs told me to do this, but he didn't. The centurion went right back to the tribune and said, what are you doing? Did you know that he's a Roman citizen? The tribune comes down and talks to the Apostle Paul. And the tribune says to the Apostle Paul, how did you become a Roman citizen? I had to pay a huge amount of money to purchase this citizenship. Now, some of us who are American citizens maybe don't recognize the great value of being a citizen of a great city or a great country. But in Rome, to be, to be a citizen of the city of Rome was an immense privilege. It was to be counted among the very elite of the whole Roman world. Now, typically, um, you, the, way to, the way that you gained your citizenship was to be born as a citizen, and this is what the Apostle Paul was. But the Tribune reveals that there's another way that you could have been, become a Roman citizen in the ancient world, and one of those ways was to purchase it. See, kind of two ways that you could become a Roman citizen if you weren't born one. One was performing some great service, some act of heroism and courage. Think about like the kind of thing you have to do to get a medal of honor in our society. Think about the kind of contribution that someone could make that would bring such value to the city of Rome that a person could be granted citizenship as kind of an honor or an award for doing something wonderful and great. But in other ways, you could purchase it. Because in the ancient world, during tough economic times, it was a different era. Every, every commodity that had to do with wealth was not easy to come by. Um, think about uh, to own land, to own gold, to own flocks, to own a business, a vineyard, to own spices or oils. All the different ways that wealth was represented in the ancient world were not easy to reproduce. It wasn't like nowadays when in the economic downturn they could just fire up the printer. You can't print sheep. You can't print land. You couldn't print gold. 
So when the city of Rome got in economic difficulties, one of the things they could do is open up a certain amount of citizenships to be sold. And they would be sold for massive amounts of money. And the tribune says, I bought mine. How did you come into yours? And the apostle Paul says, I was born a Roman citizen. See, sometimes we think that the Apostle Paul was a little Jewish Pharisee who was from a backwater town, who was kind of out of his league when he was uh, preaching and interacting. And that's just simply not true. The Apostle Paul came from an aristocratic family of great honor, which means somewhere back in his family, and his father or his grandfather either performed a great feat for the Roman Empire and was gifted citizenship, or made enough money and was wealthy enough to buy one. The Apostle Paul was from a town in Turkey. As a young boy, he was sent to the city of Jerusalem to study at the greatest Jewish university in the greatest Jewish city under the greatest Jewish teacher, Gamaliel. Not only that, the Apostle Paul's sister lived in Jerusalem. And we know this because in Acts 23, when there's a plot to take the Apostle Paul's life, his nephew, his sister's son, has enough access that he could go to the Roman garrison, speak to the centurion, let the centurion know about the charges against the Apostle Paul, and be freed. And the Apostle Paul, when he claims his Roman citizenship, the whole game changes. The, the tribune backs off, the centurion backs off, and the whipping that was going to happen definitely does not happen. And this begins a kind of um, Roman imprisonment from the Apostle Paul that allows him to be protected but enjoy an immense amount of freedom. It was in this position that the Apostle Paul would write letter after letter that would fill the New Testament. But the, but the Roman tribune still needs to find out what's at the bottom of these charges. And he is not allowed to beat it out of him. And so he calls a, an emergency meeting of the Jewish council. We know that this is the Sanhedrin. So he calls a meeting of the Jewish council of the Sanhedrin. And he brings the apostle Paul in front of them. Because he wants to observe and hear a trial. He wants them to get to the bottom of, are there any real charges here that have to be followed up on? The Apostle Paul stands in front of the Sanhedrin, and we know from the earlier chapters of the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. This is decades later, he's now standing in the highest, most influential, moral court of his day. The great Jewish leaders, the great Jewish teachers, the high priest of the nation of Israel, and the Apostle Paul standing right in front of them. This is the day after he was almost beaten to death in this city. The day after he was almost beaten and flogged in that prison. And the Apostle Paul, before anyone says anything, something comes out of his mouth that is so offensive to the high priest that the high priest orders that the, uh, the guards that are next to the Apostle Paul strike him on the mouth. And it might not sound like much because the Apostle Paul just said, I, I've got to, I, I stand here in front of this court with a clear conscience. When we read that and we might say, well, what was so offensive about that to have the Apostle Paul punched in the mouth? <laughs> the Apostle Paul stood in front of the Jewish council that held the power to declare people morally, spiritually guilty or not guilty. And before the chief priest could even begin his great royal proceeding, the Apostle Paul declared himself to be completely and totally innocent. What he basically did is he looked at the Sanhedrin and said, I don't care what one of you thinks about me spiritually. 
Now, I just want to ask you a question. Where does that kind of nerve come from? Where does that kind of courage come from? For the Apostle Paul to be beaten, physically broken and bloody, and yet internally, in his own conscience, in his own internal spiritual condition, to be totally clean, totally strong, totally clear-headed. The Apostle Paul on this day in a very powerful room with very powerful people was the most powerful man in that whole entire room. And there's one reason why. Because the Sanhedrin sat there morally guilty. This was the council that had declared the Son of God to be guilty. And their consciences were filthy with that sin. And the Apostle Paul, though beaten and bloody, stood right in front of them and he told them right out loud, inside his own conscience, he said, I don't care what you guys think about me. In the book of Corinthians, the Apostle Paul would even say, I don't, I don't even listen to what I think about me. The Apostle Paul would say, I don't care what you think about me morally. He'd say, I don't care what Rome thinks about me morally. I don't care what the Tribune thinks about me morally. I don't care what a centurion thinks about me morally. I don't care what anybody thinks about me morally. He said, I don't even care what the man in the mirror thinks about me morally. There is only one person who I care about, what their thoughts are about me morally and spiritually. Only one person. And who is that person? Jesus Christ. I mean, think about the kind of courage that's required. Think about the kind of spiritual nerve that's required. And he lobs a grenade right into, the, right into this Jewish council. And we know that they have no moral stamina anymore because it takes almost nothing. The two parties are at each other, attacking each other, and have lost all sense of decorum or law and order. The tribune uh, pulls them out of there, takes them back into the barracks. Now, when I say that, when I ask you the question, when I present this case of what the Apostle Paul, what his inner conscience condition was, where are you? Sometimes, you know, if I say, um, if I say, let's think about how difficult it is to really stand up in front of very important people and look them right in the eye and say, I don't care what you think about me. We can think to ourselves, well, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal. People are doing that on TV all the time. Every other commercial I ever see is the basic message is, don't care what anybody thinks about you. You just do you and don't even worry about it. Is this what the Apostle Paul was talking about? You do you? We all know that's not real. And we know it's not real because the very people who are saying, I don't care what anybody thinks about me, will fight and scratch and claw to force you to affirm what it is that they're doing. And that's exactly how we know that that's not, that's not real. The Apostle Paul really, truly looked at anybody and everybody with nerve and said, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what I think about me. And you know where it came from? Something that we don't talk about a whole lot anymore in our modern society. Something called your conscience. And even though the Bible is a really, really old book, it knows all about us modern people. 
deep down inside of you in a, in, in a place that is deep and you know where it is. On one tablet of your heart is written a moral code. We all know exactly what it means to be a good person. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't cheat. Tell the truth. Have courage. We know. There's a code written on our hearts. What does it mean to be a good person? Every single human being basically knows. And on the other tablet of your heart is a written record of just exactly how well you've done at being that person that you know you ought to be. And you know what happened when those two tablets don't match? You know how painful that is? You know how hard that is to look in the mirror and know that there is a person you know you ought to be and to also look right in your pupils, right in the mirror and go, you're not that man. What could ever make that right? There's only one thing. There's only one power. There's only one person who is powerful enough to wash that tablet fresh and clean. And you know who that is? That's the person of the Holy Spirit taking the saving, cleansing work of the blood of Jesus Christ. So it's not just for other people. It's for you. The Apostle Paul, all the way, I mean, think about this. The Apostle Paul stood in front of the Sanhedrin and said, my conscience is totally clear. And do you think that's because there was never anything written on his conscience of what he had done wrong? He had killed women and children for his religious zealotry. You think he never heard their cries in the night? And yet he could stand right in front of this whole group of people and say, my conscience is crystal clear. Because he didn't care what the Sanhedrin thought about him. He didn't even listen to what he thought about himself. He looked one place, and it's a total binary. Has the blood of Christ washed you clean, or has it not? And if the blood of Jesus Christ has erased your record of sin and made you right with God, who can write again over that blood? Who's got so much power to overwrite that blood? Who can overpower the verdict of not guilty that comes from the cross of Jesus Christ? You tell me. The Apostle Paul stood there and knew deep, deep down, Jesus Christ has forgiven me. I'm clean. And if I have his smile... I don't care who else frowns at me. Julius Caesar himself could frown at me and the apostle Paul would look at him. <laughs> and you know what he would do? He'd put his hand on the throttle and go. <laughs> that night in prison, apostle Paul didn't care what the Romans thought about him. Didn't care what the Sanhedrin thought about him. We already know. He, doesn't, he didn't care about what the whole city of Jerusalem. Think about that. A whole city could say, we hate you. And a whole religious council could say, we hate you. The Supreme Court of the Apostle Paul's day could all stand up there in their robes and their white things and say, we hate you. And the Apostle Paul would say, I don't care. But in... This doesn't mean that he just was like a, a, an ironclad person who didn't care about anything. Because that night in the prison, now remember Luke is writing the book of Acts. Luke was a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul. They, sh 
They traveled together. They shared a lot together. The Apostle Paul certainly told Luke what happened on this night. And he said, I was in the prison and the Lord Jesus came over me. only person who the Apostle Paul cared about their opinion. And Jesus Christ came and shared his opinion of the Apostle Paul. And what did he say to him? He said, take courage. You testified about me in Jerusalem. You told him the facts. You did a good job. Yeah, hundreds of people beat you and hated you, but you did a good job. And the Romans arrested you. And they've got you bound and they've got you in this prison. I'm here with you. Whole Jewish council. Turn their anger and hatred. They struck you on the mouth. But you did a good job. You told them about me. And now, you get to do even more. See, it's the most amazing thing in, in the kingdom of heaven. When, when Jesus Christ gives you something hard to do and you do a good job of it, you know what you want to hear, right? After you, do some, after you go through something real hard and if Jesus Christ is going to come say, you did a good job, you know the next thing that you want is to see your boarding pass to Florida. <laughs> to stay at Del Boca Vista until you hit about 95. I'll, Lord, I'll take shuffleboard until the end. Thank you very much. <laughs> right? And Jesus looks at the Apostle Paul and says, you did a good job. You did, a, you did good at a hard thing. And you're going to get to honor, you're going to get the honor of honoring me even more by doing something harder. Hey, Paul, how about we go to Rome? How about we walk into the most powerful city? And how about you tell the most powerful people in all the world, people who make nations shudder, how about you go tell them about me? Now, how about you? Do you have this kind of spiritual nerve that comes not from like just bucking up and going, you know, my dad taught me to be tough and I don't care what anybody thinks about me. Not that. I mean a real kind of mental and spiritual toughness that comes from a washed clean conscience. How is it between you and God? And there's only one way for you to answer that question. It's good. And that is, have you dealt with the cross? Have you come to the cross? Has the shed blood of Jesus Christ washed you clean? Have you gone through the great trade? Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. Went to the cross and suffered the condemnation of an awful life. And the reason he did it is to make a trade with you. You give me your sin. Because I already paid for that. And I'll give you my righteousness. You can walk in front of a holy God. And it can be good between the two of you. But only one way. There's only one place to get that. And listen, Jesus wasn't just an egomaniac. When he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The reason he said that is because he's the only one who could do that. Have you dealt with God about Jesus Christ? And if you have, and a lot of you in here have, then my question is, how is it between you and Jesus? Do you have his smile? 
He's a holy king, you know. Is there any sin going on in your life that you're holding on to? And if you look inside and listen to your conscience, is it clear? Have you confessed? If Jesus Christ has something against you, a sin that you're committing and holding on to, a devotion, something else that you love more than him, you need to listen to your conscience and you need to take that. And don't wallow in it and don't beat yourself up over it. And don't try to work it off your record. That is not the way forgiveness works. What you do when your conscience testifies against you, when Jesus has something against you, what you do is you bank on his promises. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to do what? To give us penance? To forgive you. How is it between you and Jesus? Do you have his smile? Do you have a clear conscience? And if Jesus was to come visit you tonight in your own bed and talk to you about his personal assignment for you, it's not just the people in the Bible that get personal assignments from Jesus Christ. He still hands out personal assignments. Way that you, the way that you, the person sitting in your chair, is created and called to honor him and to build into his kingdom. Would he look at you and say, take courage? You're doing a good job. How about something heavier? Some of you might be going through a turbulent time and the plane of your life is shaken. And you might be real tempted to back off the throttle. Boy, and I hope and pray that tens of us, hundreds of us, would deal with God about what it means to have a clean and strong Christian conscience. So with great courage, does anybody think that we need some people with the Apostle Paul's kind of conscience that could stand up and say, I don't care what you think about me. There's only one person's smile I need, and his name is not yours. He's the great high king Jesus, and if, he, if he's smiling on me, I don't care what other frowns I have. Does anybody think we could use some people like this in our day? Boy, I hope and pray that it's you. Have you dealt with God about the cross of Jesus Christ? Has your conscience been rinsed and washed clean? Is there anything that you're holding on to that Jesus would say, hey, that's not the way we do it here in my kingdom? And how are you doing with an assignment that he's given you? Even if it's a real hard one. You know, may, may we be the kind of people who would look at a guy like the Apostle Paul and say, he's, he's one of our founding fathers. And his, his spirit, that nerve runs through us. May that happen to us. May that happen to us. Would you stand? Let me close in a prayer. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for your word. We would have no idea that Jesus personally came and visited the Apostle Paul. We would have no idea about that except that we open up your word. We'd have no idea how to deal with the inner anxiety and pain that we feel when we have guilty consciences. We wouldn't even know what to do with that. And yet in your word, you tell us how we can be made right with you, how we can have your smile. Holy Spirit, I just, I pray right now. I know that
that you're reaching into people's lives, touching a part of them that I, I, don't, I can't do that. But I pray that your word and your voice would be heard. And that in some way, this church, we as a congregation, would grow a little more courageous, a little more holy, a little more clean, a little stronger spiritually, and a little bit more useful for your great kingdom. I pray that you'd be pleased to do that among us this morning. And I pray all this in the name of our great, our great king. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him forever and ever and ever. Amen.